Good morning, church. If I haven't met you before, my name is John, and I'm one of the elders here at Wayside. And before I get started in our sermon today, I just want to take a moment to say thank you for the, to this Wayside family. Um, there's been a lot going on in our household over the past week, from last weekend when Abby sprained her foot, um, and then she got sick this week. James has been sick all week. Ella got sick towards the end of the week. And it's just been a lot to handle with a three-year-old and a nine-month-old and a wife that was on crutches for part of the week. And um, just sending out a prayer request to the elder group on Monday um, became uh, this church just pouring out blessings on us throughout the week, providing us with meals and prayer and checking in with us. And it's just been an incredible blessing and an incredible reminder of what a wonderful community of believers Uh, looks like when they're living to serve one another and acting as the hands and feet of Christ to one another. Uh, So I just wanted to say thank you to everyone uh, for blessing me this week, for blessing Ben and the Brummett family over the past uh, month. And I just want to encourage anyone who's listening to this who isn't plugged into this community and isn't um, lifting up their prayer requests, uh, I just encourage you to do that, to lean in, um, to share your needs Um, You're going to have an opportunity at the end of the sermon to share a prayer request. And I would just encourage you to send that out um, because uh, the leaders of this church and the prayer team of this church love to pray for you and to appeal to God for you. And the body of this church really loves to serve one another. Uh, So I just wanted to say that up front. Thank you all. Um, So now I'm super excited to get to continue moving through the book of Hebrews with you this morning. And we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 5 through 9 that Elias just read. But before we get into those verses, I want to remind you that this is a single letter. It was written to a church, and it was intended to be read as a whole. Uh, So before we go any further forward, I want us to look back at where we've been so far in this letter. First, we looked at it as an overview, and we looked at the big motions and movements through the book of exhorting Christians by exalting Christ. After that, we started chapter 1 and dove into this glorious exaltation of Christ, that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. After that, we moved into the next section that we're still in today of elevating Jesus Christ above angels specifically. Um, And that section continues through next week when Chris is going to preach. And um, we started out with seeing that Jesus is the ultimate messenger from God who delivers the ultimate message from God, which is the gospel. And then the last time we were together, uh, Martine did an absolutely amazing job of gracefully unpacking the first exhortation passage in the book. He opened up and warned us and called us to pay attention to that gospel message, lest we drift away and neglect our great salvation. So this morning, I get to exalt Jesus some more, and I'm really excited about it. And in fact, we're going to explore what exactly this great salvation, which Martine urged us to pay attention to, means for us. You see, church, I don't know about you, but for me, a lot of times when I think about salvation, I first and foremost think about what I've been saved from. And that's, that's true. It's a great and true claim that our salvation is complete in the work of Christ. 
And it's a glorious thing for us to know that, and we can shout praises to Jesus that we are saved from eternal death, we are saved from slavery to sin, and we are saved from an eternal separation from God at the moment of our salvation. But as Martine explained that last week, we at Wayside hold to the words of Romans 10.9, which say, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. It is complete and it is secure. And from that moment, your salvation is secure and cannot be lost. So if that salvation is secure, what's our motivation then to pay attention and to not neglect our great salvation, as Martine exhorted us last week? You see, church, you have to understand not just what we are saved from, but what we are saved for. We have to understand what salvation means for us today and what it means for us in a future eternity. The Bible is clear that there are different aspects of the salvation of believers. First, there is the justification. That's the what you're saved from that I talked about, the thing I think of um, first. It's at the moment of salvation when you are justified or declared righteous before God because of Jesus' death. And as we continue to walk through life after that justification, we go through the process of sanctification, which is a word that the Bible uses to explain the continual movement, the continual process of us conforming and becoming more like Jesus, becoming more holy, the process of putting aside our own sinful nature and our own desires and submitting instead to the will of God. And the final aspect of that salvation is our glorification. This is the future reality of salvation. This is when we will be physically reunited with God and restored to our original glory. That glorification is what we're going to get a taste of today in Hebrews. Um, So before we go any further, let's stop and let's pray. Uh, Let's pray to God. Lord, we praise you. We praise you and we thank you for your incredible love and abounding grace um, that you suffered death on a cross for us so that we could be made righteous in your eyes. Lord, we pray and I pray that this uh, wayside family would always remember that. We would think of that and we would know that our salvation is secure in you. Lord, I pray that if anyone hasn't experienced that salvation, they would see your work on the cross and know that it is sufficient for them and would believe. And Lord, I pray that as we continue to move through life, we would be drawn to you. I pray that you would call us to you. You would conform us to the image of your Son so that we could walk in humble obedience to your will. And Lord, ultimately, I pray that you would reveal to us the incredible glory of our future eternity with you. I pray that today you would show us that glory and that as we walk through life, we would keep that glory in mind as the end goal of everything we do. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, church. So as I said already, today we get to talk about that future glorification of Christians. And even though this is a future reality, it's important for us to understand it so that we can stay focused on the present aspects of salvation, the justification and the sanctification. Now, friends, I'm definitely not the first person to stress the importance of understanding a final destination before you set out on a journey or an endeavor. You have to know where you're going before you start. 
This is a truth that is found throughout the Bible. It's in the stories of the Old Testament. It's in the wisdom of the Psalms and the Proverbs. It's in the teachings of Jesus, and it's found in the letters of the New Testament as well. And this is actually one of the uncommon times where biblical wisdom and worldly wisdom appear to agree, at least on the surface. You see, it's not uncommon to say that you're looking for a purpose, right? Everyone is searching for a greater purpose in life to guide their actions. Now, with all the highly effective business folk we have out there listening, I am sure that some of you are familiar with Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits for Highly Effective People. If you've read that book, then you might recall the second habit, which is begin with the end in mind. That habit, this idea, is what the author of Hebrews is trying to help his readers do in our passage today. And I think Covey's definition of what it means to begin with the end in mind, which you see on the screen there, is a particularly helpful explanation for why it is so important for us to understand the final goal of our salvation. He writes, To begin with the end in mind means to start with a clear understanding of your destination. It means to know where you're going so that you better understand where you are now and so that the steps you take are always in the right direction. You have to know your destination so that you can understand where you are now and make sure the steps you're taking are always in the right direction. But friends, the important difference between the worldly version of this wisdom and the biblical version is that destination. It is crucial that we understand the right end, the right destination to guide our steps. You see, this world is saturated with relativism that says, you get to determine your own meaning, find your own purpose, create your own destiny. Whatever's best for you, go for it. You're empowered. You be you, whatever that means to you. But the Bible clearly teaches that before the world was created, from the beginning of time, God had a plan for us. God had a purpose for us. God knows what is truly best for us. Well, the world says, find your own unique purpose. God says, I have made you for a true purpose. But friends, because of our sin, we've lost sight of that purpose. We've forgotten what we were made for. and We've forgotten what we were saved for. Instead of pressing on towards God's salvation for us, God's great destination for us, we seek out our own goals. We drift away from God and we neglect our great salvation because we do not know our purpose. Today in the book of Hebrews, we're going to get a glimpse of that purpose. We're going to get a glimpse of the ultimate destination that God intends us for. We will see that we were meant to rule over the earth in fellowship with God and that through Christ we will one day be restored to that honor to rule for eternity. Now, church, I know it might sound crazy. I just said we were made to rule over the earth. But before you say I'm crazy and turn off the Zoom call, just hang in there and let's dive into this text today and let's look at it. Let's look at verse 5 together. Hebrews 2, verse 5 says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So let's dive into this. We start out once again with a transition word, for which tells us that the author is continuing something that he was already talking about. That's reinforced at the end of this sentence where it says, of which we are speaking. 
Some translations say the world to come that we are already talking about. So if he's already talking about this, we have to look back and see what he was already talking about, right? And what he was just doing, what he was just talking about was explaining the great salvation that we are in danger of neglecting. So if we look back at Hebrews verses, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we see that this great salvation was declared at first by the Lord, was attested to us by eyewitnesses, and was testified to us by God through signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, continuing on that explanation of great salvation, he writes in verse 5, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So as an explanation of our great salvation, he tells us that God did not subject the world to come to angels. Now let's work backwards through this verse so we can understand exactly what the author is saying. Um, At the end of it there, we have the world to come of which we are speaking. So he's talking about salvation here. As we said, he's explaining our great salvation. So this author, through the Holy Spirit, understands that the world we see now is not going to last forever. He's already made that claim back in chapter 1 when he said the heavens and the earth will wear out and perish So now he's talking about the world that is going to come to replace the one that we see now. And moving back through there, we see that God has subjected. So we're talking about who God has subjected the world to come to. This verse presupposes that God has the ultimate authority, that he has power over all things, and he has the authority to delegate that power to whomever he pleases. So we're talking here about who God will use to rule over the world to come. Now we're back to the beginning of verse 5. We see the answer to that question. It was not to angels. So God will not use angels to rule the world to come. And this causes the Hebrews and us to immediately ask a question. If angels won't rule it, then who will? In answer to this question, the author uses this familiar strategy of turning back to the Old Testament. He quotes from the Psalms. And he quotes from Psalm 8 in verses 6 through 8 here. And as he quotes it, he doesn't feel the need, once again, to tell his readers where it comes from. He doesn't give a reference or say, this is from the psalmist. He just dives into it because he expects his Hebrew audience to know their scriptures. So let's look at that in verses 6 through 8. It says, It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. So the author answers that question of who will rule with another question. What is man? And as a quick aside here, ladies, you're not left out of this. When... The author of Hebrews and the author of the Psalms say, what is man? They're talking about mankind, and you're included in that. And that'll become very clear as we trace back through these links. So let's do that. Let's follow this hyperlink back to Psalm 8. In case you, like me, don't know your Bible quite as well as these Hebrew Christians, and you don't immediately understand the significance and the meaning of this quote. So Psalm 8 was written by David, the great king of Israel, and While I don't know exactly when in his life he wrote it, I like to picture that it was a young David watching over his flocks at night or 
leading armies through the fields of battle or even fleeing from Saul or the other people that were after him, seeking his life. And I picture this young David out in the fields at night, looking up at the stars and marveling at creation and breaking out in praise to the creator. So just picture that as we look at Psalm 8 together. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established the strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Friends, this is the mindset of the author of Hebrews when he says, what is man? Like David, he is awestruck by the idea that God even gives us the time of day. He is amazed that we humans, we weak, corrupt, and sinful humans would be given any honor or authority or dominion by the creator of the universe. But at the same time, as David marvels at this, He knows the truth. He knows that God has given us dominion over the works of his hands. He has placed all things under our feet. Now, right here in this psalm, we have another hyperlink. And as David wonders at creation, he certainly has the words of Genesis 1 on his mind. And in the culmination of creation, in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, we can see God's original purpose for man. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, we see right there at the beginning of creation that mankind was created to have dominion over creation. This is the true original purpose of man, to glorify God by ruling over creation with him. And again, ladies, here we see that in full clarity that this is not just talking about men. It's not just talking about males. It's saying God created them male and female, and male and female, he commanded them to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So we're ruling the earth. Hallelujah, right? End of the sermon. We can all go home and just celebrate that the earth is under our control. Not quite. Um, Right, at this point, the author feels the need to interject, just as I did at the beginning of this sermon, and I feel the need to say again now and say, please hang with me. Don't throw away this letter in their case or turn off this Zoom call to go watch Super Bowl pregame in your case. 
please just let me explain. Because at the end of verse 8, the author raises the objection that would have been running through the minds of his Hebrew audience. And the objection that's probably been running through your mind as I've been talking this morning. He says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Am I right, church? Amen? The author freely and readily admits, as I freely and readily admit, that these truths of Scripture don't seem to line up with my observation of reality. All things in creation are not subject to humanity. And because of this Zoom call, it's a one-way conversation here, and I can't hear you, but I'm sure you're all shouting amen. In the past week, uh, with a sick and hurt wife and two sick kids, I have been starkly reminded that the world is not subject to me. Over this past year, maybe more than ever before, at least in our lifetimes, we have been starkly reminded that the world is not under our control. A virus too small for us to see has killed millions of people, and millions more have died from the same forces of the world that have been killing us since death first entered. Friends, death is an imminent, it's a constant reminder that this world is not under our control. We were created to rule, as we just read, but we blew it. We sinned, and in our sin we squandered our purpose. We vacated our throne. So then is our purpose lost? What does it look like to walk now without that purpose? As I was preparing this sermon, and I was trying to think about what it looks like to live without a purpose, without a clear destination in mind. I was standing at our kitchen island, and our robot vacuum, who we affectionately or angrily call Rosie, bumped into my feet. And then she bumped into my feet again, and again, and again. And as I stepped back in frustration to watch Rosie continue to bump into the walls aimlessly, trying to find her way back to the charging station, I realized that God was showing me very literally what it must look like to him to see us living without a purpose, living without a clear destination. You see, while some fancier robot vacuums might have a way that they map out the pattern of your house and a fancy algorithm that tells them the most efficient way to clean, um, our sweet Rosie uses the old tried-and-true method of drive straight until I run into something, turn a little bit, drive again until I hit something, and occasionally just spin around in a circle and pick a new direction to try it out. And that's exactly the kind of behavior that Stephen Covey is warning us about when he says to begin with the end in mind, to start with a clear understanding of our destination <clears throat> so that we can understand where we are now and know what the next steps are to keep moving in the right direction. And this is exactly the behavior the author of Hebrews is warning us against when he exhorts us to pay attention to the gospel so that we do not neglect our great salvation and drift away. And friends, when you look around and you see the world that is utterly out of your control, don't be like Rosie. Don't wander aimlessly drifting through life without a purpose. Or worse, don't buy into the idea that you can decide for yourself what your purpose is. What competing goals in your life are choking out the call of obedience to God's will? Are you chasing after an ultimate goal of wealth and riches or success or popularity or fame or the perfect family? 
If these things have become the chief end for your life, you're working against God. You're neglecting the great, glorious future of your salvation. Instead, friends, remember what you were made for and remember what you were saved for. Remember your calling to rule as God's ambassador and know that while this original purpose was distorted and delayed by our sin, there is hope in Christ. This is exactly where the author of Hebrews goes next. Let's look at verse 9 together and see the great hope we have in Christ. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That beautiful contrast is our hope in Christ. The contrast of verses 8 and 9, while we presently do not yet see creation subject to humanity, we do see Jesus. We see Jesus, who in his incarnation took on the form of man. It was made for a little while lower than the angels. We see Jesus, who through his resurrection and ascension into heaven was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And while we cast aside our crown and we ruin our glory with our sin, Jesus has earned the right to be crowned with glory and honor because of his perfect obedience to the Father's will, even to the point of suffering death on the cross. That same death that serves as a constant reminder that we are not in dominion was suffered by Christ. And by the grace of God, Jesus Christ tasted that death for everyone so that we could be saved from the eternal death. And by the power of God, Jesus Christ defeated death. He rose from the dead and has been crowned in glory and honor at the right hand of God. Friends, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our purpose has been redeemed. So what does this mean for us today? This means that we can have certainty in our glorious future with Christ, And paying attention to that secure and certain future glory, we can look to Jesus as our end goal and as our example of how to live in our daily lives. Let's jump back to Rosie the Robovac, because there's one occasion every time she runs that she does act with a clear and intentional purpose. Once she's bumped around the house aimlessly, pushing dog hair around and cleaning a little bit until her battery is low, She slows down and continues bumping around the house aimlessly, trying to find that charging station. But as soon as that charger is in sight, she stops the aimless wandering. She turns to face it. She sets out on a clear and intentional path to her known destination. As soon as the destination is in sight, Rosie knows exactly where she is and exactly where to go next. So what's our answer to drifting aimlessly or to sprinting in the wrong direction after worldly glory? Look to Jesus. Turn your eyes to Jesus, as we just sang. The author of Hebrews uses the phrase, fix your eyes on Jesus, several times to describe this action. And Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, offers an excellent breakdown of what it looks like to stay focused on the example of Jesus. In Philippians 2, as he writes to encourage the Philippian church to be united, to come together and to serve one another humbly, he says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, 
Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, or perhaps being made for a little while lower than angels. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, or crowned him with glory and honor, And bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So friends, fix your eyes on Jesus. When you look around and see the world that is out of your control, look up and fix your eyes on Jesus. Follow his example of humble obedience to the will of God. When you're tempted to chase after worldly success, after wealth and status and family and a promotion, fix your eyes on Jesus and chase after him instead for the ultimate goal of your glorification and ultimately the glory of God the Father. Church, remember what you're living for. Remember what you were made for and what you were saved for. Mankind has failed to fulfill our original purpose, but in Christ that purpose is redeemed and glorified. And today we're living in the not yet, right? We do not yet see creation subject to us. We're living in that not yet time. So let's look to Jesus. Let's follow the example of Jesus and walk humbly in obedience as we look forward to hope in our future glorification. I want to close this again today in Revelation because remember this is the world to come that we're talking about. And the last chapter of the last book of the Bible gives us an absolutely glorious picture of what it will look like one day when we reign with Christ in the world to come. Revelation 22 verses 3 through 5 say, No longer will there be, will there be any curse. The throne of God And of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Church, as believers in Christ, we are the servants of God. So let's look at this again and with that in mind and read that the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and we will serve him. We will see his face and his name will be on our foreheads. There will be no more night. We will not need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun for the Lord God will give us light and we will reign forever and ever. That is our future glory that we must look to and cling to as we find our way in this world. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.